Okay, our series in four words. We've been, we've been talking about the kerygma, uh, all of Lent, the proclamation of what God has done in the person of Jesus. In four words, created, captured, rescued, and response. We spent all of Lent talking about these first three parts, created, captured, rescued, and response, made the human person, made in the image and likeness of God, his favorite creature, the one that he loves the most, the one that he wants to become just like him, ruined by sin, not just ruined, but captured, uh, held in captivity uh, by this other creature, this more powerful creature, Satan, the devil. Uh, And Jesus comes to rescue us by fighting for us, going to war for us on the cross, triumphing over this enemy, Uh, by his resurrection. And now we're spending all of the Easter season asking this question, how do we reasonably respond to the action of God and Jesus? What what do we do? And and this, so many ways, this question is is the question, right? We looked last week about this this image uh, that that I like to use of being stuck in a cave uh, where there's no way out. You can't find the way out because it's so dark, it's so uh, isolated, it's so lonely, it's so confusing and and, and filled with, with cloudedness. But then this person comes to us with a torch in their hand and they tell us, I know the way out of here, follow me. What's the response to that? The response is surrender, right? To give full authority over to that person who has a light, who knows the way. Jesus, who is the way, what is the appropriate response to what God has done in Jesus? To surrender everything to him because he's the only one that can lead us to heaven. He's the only one. He he says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this ultimately is what we call faith, right? If we truly have faith in Jesus, we believe that he's the only one who can lead us to heaven. He's the only one who can lead us to the Father. And so therefore, we surrender everything to him. We give him authority over our lives. Ultimately, this this comes like in Acts chapter 2, a perfect image of this, uh, which which we heard a big chunk of uh, in our first reading, where Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches the kerygma to people who have not yet heard of Jesus or who have not believed in him yet. He preaches the kerygma, and we're going to hear this next week, that, that when he finishes, they're cut to the heart, and their response, and chapter 2, verse 37, is this. What are we to do, my brothers? Right? The response is open-handed surrender, saying, you just tell us what to do because we believe. We believe in him. We have faith in him, and we're ready to respond however you tell us to respond, to give him and his church authority over our lives. That's, that's the beginning. But now we want to ask the question, like, what's next? What's the next thing? If I've made this, this, this response of surrender, what do I do next? Well, what's next is verse 38, right? Chapter 2, verse 37, they're asking a question. What are we to do? In verse 38, Peter gives an answer. And his answer, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you too shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 40, he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What's the first response after I've surrendered everything? Repent. And then from there, he says that somehow our repentance, our response in faith, it actually helps to save us, which I mentioned this last week, right? That you are part of the story. You are part of the kerygma of what God has done in the person of Jesus. And if you don't respond, then the story is incomplete. If you don't respond, then God's mission, Jesus's mission for you can't be fulfilled. What's his mission? to save you, to bring you to heaven. If you don't respond, you can't go. And his story is incomplete. And it tells us that the first response, surrender. Following that, repentance. And this is nothing new. Looking at the beginning of the Gospels, 
John the Baptist, we see him in Matthew chapter 3, out in the desert, preaching a message. What's the message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is his first words in public as one sent by God. Repent. And it says that all the people were eager to receive his message. And so people from all over were flocking to him, being baptized by him in the River Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. This makes sense. If God comes down among us, it makes sense for us that we would have to acknowledge that we haven't always followed his ways. That too many times we've lived selfishly, insisting on doing things our own way. And then Jesus, when he begins his public ministry in, in Matthew chapter 4, the very next chapter, he begins it, right? He, he, he lives his first 30 years in silence. He begins calling people to follow after him. And then he begins preaching in public for the first time. And what's his first word? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first words of John the Baptist, the first words of Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It only makes sense then that Peter, the minister, the representative of Jesus, his first words, it only makes sense that he would call people to repentance. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, it begs the question, what is repentance? Right, so repentance is, is one motion that has two parts to it, right? So I am turning away from my sin. Right? My, my sinful, selfish behavior, I'm turning away from that and I'm turning toward God. And turning away from it means I'm putting it behind me. I'm no longer going to act in that way. I'm no longer going to speak in that way. I'm no longer going to think in that way because I see now that God is here before me and I want to act uprightly before him. Right? I'm turning from this and toward him. It's the same action with two different intentions. This is what it is. But, but all of this in so many ways, right? Before we even get to the point of being ready to turn, we have to sort of get back to this question of surrender, right? Before I can turn toward godly, virtuous behavior, I have to ask, am I actually open to being taught what is godly and virtuous behavior? Am I open to being instructed what is pleasing or displeasing to God? Because after all, I'm turning not according to what I think. I've surrendered myself. I'm merely here to follow instructions because I see how good God is. I see what he's done for me. And my surrender is not that I suddenly can find my own way out of the cave, but it's that Jesus is the one. And so it's Jesus. What do you think that I should do? What do you say that I should do? Am I open to being instructed by him? Because if, not, if I'm not open to that, then there's nothing for me to turn to. If my surrender to Jesus is half-hearted or is fake, then he's going to tell me, his, he's going to give me instructions. He's going to tell me how to get out of the cave. And I'm just going to say, nah, I'll find another way. Right? And this gets back to the fall. Remember this. God gave Adam and Eve one command in the garden, and they rebelled against that, saying to themselves, I don't need God to tell me what is good and what is evil. I don't need God to tell me what to do or not to do. I can figure it out for myself. And them figuring it out for themselves resulted in the fall, which resulted in their enslavement. Right? So if I'm not open to being instructed and formed by God's opinions and not my own, then I'm no better than them, and I'm stuck in slavery to the devil, just like they were. Now, how is it that I'm formed? How is it that, that I learned godly behavior? Well, again, we know this, we're, we're formed by the word of God. 
As Catholic Christians, and all Christians for that matter, we believe that this is divinely inspired words. In fact, St. Paul says this when he writes to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. How do I know what's pleasing or displeasing to God? I have to read the Bible. St. Paul is writing about the Old Testament. We can take his words and, of course, apply it to the New Testament, right? If it's Jesus who we're surrendering ourselves to, then we especially need to be reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and looking for those places where Jesus gives instructions so that we can follow them. Again, because he's so good and he's so generous, he's so merciful in coming to us in this place of darkness and leading us out. But then the thing is this, that it's not only the Word of God, but that we saw in our Gospel passage last week, What we saw, Jesus appears to them, risen from the dead in chapter 20. And he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. He says this to his apostles. How does the Father send, right? He's saying, okay, just as God sent me, so now I'm sending you. How does the Father send Jesus? Well, with authority to preach and teach. He sends him with authority to heal and cast out demons. He sends him with authority to forgive sins. So Jesus is saying, just as he sent me with this authority, so now I'm sending you. Do you see this? Jesus is giving his authority to his apostles, to his church, so that when his church teaches, it is Jesus who teaches. When his church heals and casts out demons, it is Jesus who does those things. When his church forgives sins, it is Jesus who does those things. So my formation, my surrender, my receiving instruction of what is pleasing or displeasing to God, it's not only found in the word. Of course it's found in the word, but it's also found in the doctrines of the church. The church, by the way, which is the Catholic church. Are you open to that? To being instructed informed by the word of God and by the doctrines of the church. Because if you're not, you're no better than Adam and Eve. You're no different. But if you are, then we can begin talking about repentance. Right? Because then we know where we're turning. What we're turning from, our selfish, sinful ways, our own personal preferences and opinions, our own ways of thinking. I'm turning from that and I'm turning toward a surrender to just saying, Jesus, you teach me. Teach me through your word. Teach me through the doctrines of your church. That's what I'm turning toward. Now, what's this going to include? If I'm turning toward this, turning from sinful behavior and toward godly things, that means this is going to include a confession of my sins. Repentance includes a confession, an acknowledgement that I've chosen my own ways. We see this when John the Baptist is preaching. People come to him, they're baptized by him, confessing their sins. We saw this last week again in our gospel passage. Right after Jesus gives his authority to them, it says that he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He says a similar thing in Matthew chapter 18. He says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do you see this? He's giving them the authority to decide which sins should be forgiven and which sins should not be forgiven. If that's true, how are they going to know? Well, there's an expectation that people are going to come to them and tell them their sins. 
He wouldn't give this authority if he didn't expect them to use it so that people would come to them repentant, hopefully telling them, I did this. And they can decide whether they are to be forgiven or not forgiven. Right? So someone who is truly repentant before the Lord is going to be confessing their sins to the Lord's minister. And the purpose of this isn't so that the minister can find out all your dirty laundry, but the purpose of this is so that the minister, using the authority that Jesus has given him, can, can communicate to you God's forgiveness and mercy. That's the purpose, so that you can know with confidence that you've been forgiven. But then from there, after I've confessed my sins, right, I need to amend my life, we say. I need to, I need to actually move forward as I follow Jesus out of the cave, to let go of sinful, wicked behavior and take on into my life behavior that is fit for the kingdom of God. John the Baptist says this in Matthew chapter 3. He says, bear fruit that befits repentance. In other words, if you truly are repentant, that means it's meant to be evident in the way that you live your life, your, your behavior, your words, your thoughts, your actions, right? All of this is meant to point to a person, a heart that is truly repentant. And if it doesn't, then maybe you're not truly repentant. Uh, Peter says this, and we heard part of this in our first reading. He says, as obedient children, right? Obedience. This isn't a word that we typically like to hear, right? But as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. What's he saying? Before you knew Jesus, you were stuck in ignorance. Before you knew Jesus, you were stuck in sinful conduct, in sinful behavior. But now he says, as obedient children, right? You're surrendered to the Lord saying, you just tell me what to do. As an obedient child, don't be conformed to this, but instead recognize that the one who calls you is not just another person, but the one who calls you is God himself. God who is separate from the world. God who is different than the way that people are living their lives on earth. Be holy as he is holy. Let your life be a life that is set apart for the purposes of God. What does he say? Conduct yourselves with reverence during your time of sojourning, realizing that you are ransomed from your futile conduct. Conduct yourselves with reverence. Why? Because you were ransomed. He paid a price for you to set you free from sin. And that price was not a price of silver and gold, but the price was the blood of his own son, Jesus. He paid that price. And so to know that you have such a good father, be reverent toward him. Always aware of the incredible sacrifice that the father, that Jesus made for you so that you could be set free from your futile conduct, your conduct that led to the pits of hell. You could be ransomed from that so that you could be brought to the heights of heaven. Always be aware of that and always have this disposition, reverence. Father, I don't want to do anything that offends you. I don't want to do anything, one, that's going to get me lost in this cave again, but also I don't, I don't want to break this relationship because you've gone to such great lengths to restore it. And I want to live in that place. This is what repentance looks like. Now, there's, there's a really important distinction for us to make here. The Bible also teaches us that not all sin has equal weight. Not all sin has equal gravity. St. John talks about how there's some sin that's more serious. Listen to 1 John chapter 5. He says this, If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a mortal sin, he will ask, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not mortal. There is sin which is mortal. I do not say that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not mortal. What, is, what does mortal mean? If I give someone a mortal blow, I've killed them. 
Right, so John is saying that there is sin which is mortal. That is to say that there is sin which is deadly. If I commit a sin that is deadly, I have destroyed the love of God in my heart, which means if there's no love of God in my heart, then there is no heaven for me. There is no eternal life, but there is only eternal death for me. And so especially, right, all wrongdoing is sin and we should repent of all of it, but especially, the Bible is teaching us, should we repent of our mortal sins, now, what are mortal sins? Well, so, so for something to be a mortal sin, there are three conditions that need to be met. The first one is that it has to be something that the church considers to be grave matter. And I'll give an example, and I actually have a, a whole list of things, actually, that I printed off of sins that the church considers to be grave matter. Things that break God's commandments, especially the Ten Commandments, in a very direct way. And again, the purpose of this is not so that we can all see how terrible and wicked we are, but the purpose is that I've, I know so many people who just don't know that they're committing sins of grave matter and that God's judgment is going to be upon them for that. I'm doing this not so that I can tell you how terrible and wicked you are. I'm doing this so that I can, I can invite you to receive God's mercy so that you can have heaven opened up for you and to live in that confident place and to acknowledge I myself need to go to confession just like anybody else does. Now, something needs to be grave matter. I have to know that it's grave matter. And then I have to freely choose it anyway. An example, missing mass on Sunday or a holy day of obligation is a sin of grave matter. If I don't know that it's a sin of grave matter, when I miss mass on Sundays, I don't commit a mortal sin. Now you know. If I know that missing Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation is a sin of grave matter and I freely choose to do so anyway, placing something else above it, whether it's sports or activities or sleep or family time, if I freely choose it, then I've committed a mortal sin and I need to repent of that because I've committed a sin that destroys the charity of God in my heart. Now, there's some, there are some examples when a person is not free, right? If you're driving to Mass and you get a flat tire, right, you're not freely choosing to miss it. Or if you wake up in the morning and you're seriously ill, right? you're not freely choosing to miss Mass. So if I'm not freely choosing it, then again, I haven't committed a mortal sin. All three conditions need to be met. But if all three conditions are met, I need to repent. Now, this, this brings it all to a close, right? So this big ask, and I have a big ask, and I know that it's big for us this week. But my big ask is this. I printed off a whole bunch of what we call examinations of conscience. Some of them are age appropriate. This one's for elementary age. This one's for middle school. This one's for high school age. This one's for general adults. This one's for elderly. You can decide which category you fit into, right? I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that. And then there's some other general ones, right? That, that I would just give to anybody. There's some other general ones for kids, right? So my big ask is that they're on a table out there and that each person here who is seven years old or older would take one, even if you're in the habit of regularly going to confession, but that each of you would take one and read through it this week. And then go to confession soon, like within a month. Now, I know some of us, maybe we're taught that we don't need to go to confession. Some of us were taught that it's not a big deal. Whatever sins you have, just bring it to the Lord and confess in your hearts. And I'm sorry that you were taught wrongly. Because for us as Catholic Christians, one of the minimum requirements that we have for us to be considered active members in the church, one of the minimum requirements is that we would go to confession at least once a year. I've been here for almost a year. I can tell you that in all three of these parishes, I haven't heard that many confessions. And now, maybe some of us, maybe some of us are going to confession in Thief River Falls or Red Lake Falls or, or some other place. And that's fine. I, I, like, I'm not here to say you got to come to me. But I am here to say that you got to go. Because this is, for us as Catholic Christians, this is a salvation matter. 
especially, especially if we've committed mortal sins, grave sins against the Lord. And again, this isn't for the purpose of me finding out all of your dirty laundry. This isn't the purpose, uh, for the purpose of me telling you how wicked and evil you are because I myself have to go. It's for the purpose of saying, look, I desire salvation for you. And sometimes desiring salvation means you have to deliver a hard word. Sometimes desiring for salvation for someone means maybe not always making them feel good, but showing them that this is real and that our surrender to the Lord needs to be sincere and wholehearted. And so ultimately we get back to this big question. Have you surrendered yourself to the Lord yet? Have you surrendered? Have you given Jesus and his church authority over your life? If you have, repent. Repent.